This week, we are delighted to have Tom Rothenberg on the 42 Courses podcast. Tom has over 20 years experience operating at the interface of brands, technology and comms development. He's held a number of senior roles at various companies, including Chief Growth Officer at McCann London, Managing Director of Grapple Mobile, Europe's leading mobile focus innovation studio, and as a CEO for a social media startup. Tom is now the global president at Rufus, IPG's dedicated Amazon agency. In this episode, Tom shares his 10 tips for success. We cover everything from why you should always hire radiators over drains, how business can learn more from elite athletes, and why we all need to be more like lobsters. We hope you enjoy it. I can start by saying uh, it's, it's a real pleasure to have you on the podcast today. And uh, I'm definitely very envious of the fact that you're in sunny LA and I'm in a characteristically grey and wet London. Um, and, My pleasure, uh, thank you. And uh, yeah, just to say, I was very fortunate to have you as a boss early on in my advertising career and, and learned a lot during our time together. Um, and I know you've held many senior positions in agency land since then. Um, you've dabbled in some interesting tech startups and now you're running Amazon's business across the IPG group, which is obviously a huge, a huge job, um, you know, with Amazon being, I think, well, not, I think I know the world's largest advertiser with something like a $11 billion spent uh, last year, I think it was. So yeah, given all of your experience and, and, and knowledge, I thought it'd be really interesting and, and hopefully valuable for, for listeners for you to sort of share your top 10 things you've learned from uh, two decades or so in the world of, of communications. Um, and I think, yeah, first of all, when I know you've sort of sent, sent me this list through earlier, which I've, I've had a quick read and yeah, the first, the first one is um, there is no playbook. What, what do you mean? What do you mean by that? Yeah. Thank, thanks very much, Jake. So yeah, I, I think it's, um, Everyone loves a listicle, right? So the cheap, cheap ways to get clicks on the internet. Uh, exactly. Top 10s, we love them. It's, it's the end of the year as we record this. So everyone's doing kind of top 10 of 2020 and, and the like as well. Um, I guess the, you know, the, the first thing for me is you look, looking back over, as you say, a frightening number of years now since I kind of popped into the advertising industry uh, out of college as a fresh-faced young man with, that, with ambition is like you... You know, you, you, you collect wisdom along the way from working with great people. And we'll talk a lot about that, about that today and how you can maximize the chances of collecting the right, the right kind of wisdom. Um, as, you, as you progress through, through your careers in, you know, with a, with a sense for, for marketing and branding, you develop a very healthy skepticism for anyone who comes bearing the answer. Mm -hmm. uh, I think, you know, one of the things that characterized the kind of early age of the internet is, you know, there's some uh, access to access to knowledge and people popping up going, I've got the answer. Um, I've got the answer in digital marketing. I've got the answer in personal growth. I've got the answer in whatever. Now, if you believe that, that the internet democratizes information and we can all learn much more quickly about everything going on, if there was an answer, guess what? We probably would all have it by now, the small people, uh, the smart people. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I've, it's been really, really clear to me that the, the challenge is, is really not so much whatever situation you're faced with is not so much. Where do I go? It's I've got a bunch of options in front of me right now that are all right and valid in the right situation. And the art becomes how you balance, which of which good idea, hopefully of many is the overriding way to go right now. 
And mm-hmm. I find that if your job, if the task is, you know, the next phase of growth for a brand, mm-hmm. if it is, you know, where do we go with the business? Where do we pivot to? Where do we move next? Or mm-hmm. what kind of, of uncovered target um, audience should we be looking to, to, to move towards? Mm-hmm. And I think, um, as I say, beware anyone who's got the answer or the playbook because they tend to be, the playbook tends to be, can you get lots of people to buy your playbook? That's the kind of the, the pyramid scheme that we can see around us all the time as epitomized by various humans on the internet uh, in every category to, to some mirth. Absolutely. Uh, and the, the victors get to write history and survive to yeah, bias. Exactly. No, no one knows about all the businesses that, that failed miserably. Yeah, exactly. And I, and I think if you know, when you do talk to the real titans of industry, the, the people who make a real difference to the world, you, you find that they don't say the answer is to do X. It tends to be to be, believe or behave in a way like X. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I've been very lucky in, in my career to have spent time with the Virgin Company. And that, that company flows from Richard Branson's approach to way to do things. So that I've never spent any time with, with Richard personally. Um, his belief infuses the way that Virgin works. And they actually live up to their to the Virgin principles. They're very, I found it very interesting when I first worked with them, how focused they were on the Virgin way of doing things ahead of the answer of what they were actually doing. Um, and hey, they've had a bunch of misses, right? There's been all sorts of crazy Virgin companies over the years, but when they get it right, they know that they know that, um, that, it, that it works, especially when you deal with customers. And that's why I think the, you know, the airline will probably be the defining legacy until space travel kicks off of what the Virgin brand is. And you know, perhaps mu- music stores won't be and some of the other, fun businesses along the way, like color and jeans and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and at a similar level, you know, I spent a, lo- a lot of time recently over the last couple of years really focused on, on working with um, what I think is probably the world's most interesting company. And as you, as you trailed, if you're in the marketing world and you ignore Amazon, then you, 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 you're ignoring someone at your peril, mm-hmm. not just, you know, what will become the world's biggest store and therefore channel to sell products, but actually now, coming out of a world where a few years ago, Jeff Bezos famously in an internal memo coined advertising the price that you pay for an unremarkable product. As you say, he's changed his mind, which he admitted very freely in a town hall to now be the world's biggest spender on, on marketing in its totality. Mm -hmm. Um, And Amazon's journey to become a marketing, a marketing company, a brand as well as a tech platform is kind of where, where we've been working. And, And, you know, if I think the, the thing that I take from that above everything, goes back to this idea of there not being a playbook, but there are a set of principles. And anyone who wants to learn about Amazon, there's um, one, there's a great book to read um, called The Everything Store by a guy called um, Brad Stone, which is a great read, even if you're not in the e-commerce world. But um, very famously, and, and you can find these on their website, this is not, this is not you know, arcane knowledge or, or secret information. Um, there are 14 leadership principles for how Amazon solve problems and how they expect their people to behave when analyzing, you know, any challenge in the company, be it how you hire or what you do next with your marketing campaign or what product to build or mm-hmm. how you, how you set up your business for success in the future. Um, and the 14 principles are all in conflict with each other, which is really interesting. So there's a principle in there called bias for action. And we'll talk about moving fast again, a bit more later on. And Amazon's a bias for action company. So if, you, if you're sitting there not sure whether you should go or not, you should probably go. But equally, there's a principle called dive deep. Mm-hmm. They talk about taking the time to really understand, you know, X, Y, or Z scenarios to get the info to make a decision. You can sit there and go, which one do I, which one do I apply? And that's exactly the point. 
Mm-hmm. The principles conflict with each other and the art of, of being a good leader or a good operator inside Amazon is to work out which principle um, is to, to apply to any situation. Yeah. Really, 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 really interestingly, really interestingly, um, because they're all in conflict, they, they can be placed in any order except for one. And the first one always has to be when they write them on any document or whatever you talk about it, the first principle is customer obsession. Um, and that has been the yardstick that Jeff uh, Bezos has used to build that company, which is when it comes down to it, you know, and you've got decisions to be made, you will never go wrong if you obsess on the customer. Mm-hmm. And obsession is quite a dark word. Like we don't always talk about obsession being a good thing. Mm-hmm. And they fully embrace that. They're like, oh yeah, you know, we don't mind people who, are like, who get obsessed about the customer experience and who mm-hmm. are, are rabid and relentless about how you can change your business to match up to that because that's who we answer to more than shareholders. We answer to the end user, to the person who's shopping. And you know, you look at Amazon, you look at the way they've grown their business, you see that obsession come through in what they've, been, what they've really focused on. Um, yeah, no. And I, and I like that. I, I like the idea of, you know, I think, I think the art for anybody listening is you build up your own kind of rules or principles or one of those nuggets of wisdom that you're going to hold on to, to help you tackle challenges and situations and opportunities that arises. Don't be afraid for more to be a bit in conflict, you know, gather a bit of this, take a bit of that. It's a smorgasbord. You, you put them all together. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, there will be, there will be something that can kind of be the overriding yardstick somewhere in there, potentially. I don't know what business everybody's in, of course. You know, Bezos nailed it for Amazon, which was customer obsession. And that's a good, that's a good place to start. Yeah, no, I agree. And I, um, I think Elon Musk as well, he's kind of got a single guiding principle for SpaceX. You know, it's like, will this get me closer to, to Mars? Yes or no. Right. And that's the filtering system, which I think is so brilliant because you think the number of decisions and the complexity of some of the things that he's having to deal with, you know, to have that single guiding principle, like, like with Amazon makes decision-making fast. Space, and Yeah. Space, space is great, right? The sense of mission is really obvious. If I, as you say that, I'm reminded of, of two things. There's the, there's the potentially apocryphal tale of uh, John F. Kennedy in a, it's somewhere in a space center in the America, in the in America in the sixties coming across the janitor who's kind of sweeping one of the corridors and, um, you know, it's kind of very uh, open, empathetic, charismatic guy talk, goes up to the janitor rather than to the scientist. He's like, hey, I'm, you know, John, President Kennedy. And I was wondering what, what you do here. And the janitor stops his sweeping and looks up at Kennedy apparently and says, Mr. President, I'm helping to put a man on the moon. And it's like, okay, maybe it's true. Maybe it's not. But that, that sense of having everybody aligned behind a mission to the point where even the guy who's the minimum wage worker whose you know, job is to move box X from here to here or to sweep the corridors... He's like, no, I'm not sweeping the corridors. I'm making the workplace safe so that we can beat the Russians to put the man on the moon. Mm-hmm. I think the um, you know other other great tales of that of that sense of focus come from uh, uh, Dave, Dave Brailsford, the um, the cycling guy of Sky, Sky, Sky UK cycling yeah. team, yeah, yeah, um, and that what he brought to coming out of him that actually infused the, the whole British Olympic movement. We learned a bit about this. I was lucky enough to be at the agency and to spend some time with the guys who did all the, the London 2012 Olympic branding, which is an old, um, old McCann IPG project and spent a lot of time with the Olympians and they, the guys did some talks about us. And they, they were also obsessed about will every single action get us closer to the gold medal to go back to your point about, about Elon Musk to the point where a bunch of the athletes didn't go to the opening ceremony. And it was kind of noted. It's like, why you're not at the opening ceremony in the home games. This would be a one chance. They're like, 
why will having eight of our rowers go walk around at night the day before training make us more likely to win the gold medal? And they, they weighed it up to go, you know, will you get a boost to kind of patriotic fervor and intensity or are we better off having an early night with all our rivals out that night and maybe going out to a party afterwards? Mm-hmm. And it's like, you know, will it make the boat go faster? Was the rowers the one? Will, you, will this get us to the gold medal? And can you improve everything? A hundred things by 1% is a hundred percent improvement if, you, if you're free and easy mm-hmm. with the math. So that, yeah, really interesting, Mar- really interesting mindset. Marginal gains, isn't it? Marginal gains. Came out of all the stuff from post-World War Japan, Kaizen kind of continuous yeah. improvement, same, same philosophy. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, so ideas, let's talk about ideas. Uh, the, cur- the currency of business. Yeah, love to. So I, I guess, you know, um, as you trailed, I spent a bunch of time in, in, in agencies and kind of lucky enough to, to have been involved in some projects that um, got re- re- well recognized by the industry and by some of our peers. Um, including, uh, I guess, the, the Holy Grail, um, certainly the one that helped me get my visa to this country uh, in terms of being, being an expert in the industry. You know, we, we were able to win, win a Cannes Grand Prix for some work that we actually did together back in the day on, on Xbox. And I was thinking back to those days about, you know, doing the, the most kind of high-profile Cannes Grand Prix winning, FE Grand Prix winning work that we did um, and trying to identify what, it, what about that what in that creative process was unique or different. Um, and yeah, not everything you do is obviously going to be the best campaign of the year because by definition, it's just not going to happen. Um, but I thought there's a really interesting things as, as I thought back and preparing for this, which is like, not just from that, that Halo campaign, but in general, the great ideas from the right people come surprisingly early. Um, and I've always, I felt, you know, I could see the converse of that where when you're, slogging through rounds and rounds of revisions and going back to the drawing board you tend to find in a creative process that like the gold isn't probably going to come and you need to think about how you can change up just the dynamic and the environment and the people involved to get to where you need to be the good stuff comes out early but it comes out not quite fully formed it comes out kind of in the rough surrounded by obvious stuff right because when you kind of sit down you can you can sort of you need to just churn through that chaff of a kind of level one obvious thinking um and you are, i find that the great stuff is in there it's just surrounded by chaff and it needs to be pulled out and it needs to be um refined and nurtured in the right way and uh the the ego will often not let that second part happen too well where you know someone can give an objective point of view that goes hey i think that's awesome but have you thought about this and mm-hmm. You know, it's very easy to leap to like, here's why you're wrong. But actually that could be the, that could be the perspective or the tweak you need. And we, you know, we have that on our very best Xbox work where, you know, I can kind of lay out all the presentations we did and, and, and draw a line to the end point where we, where we made the stuff that we're very proud of. It's in the beginning part, but it had a different kind of context. It was partnered up with another kind of idea that overrid it. You need to just kind of work through all of that. Mm-hmm. I think that's a, I don't know if that's an intuitive thing to say, but I found that we have with the right people, the good ideas come out very early, but find, find the part that's important, hold on to it, compromise on the periphery, take feedback because you're in a, you're in a, um, uh, we're in a globally networked world now where you, you really are going to require other people to make anything amazing come to life. You mm-hmm. can't really be a solo operator and just produce in a vacuum and kind of own something. Great, great creativity right now is 
by nature a little bit more participatory in the way that it's built and also consumed. So I think that's a really interesting thing about ideas. Um, it's there, just mine it in the right way. Don't, don't keep digging. Um, the other one that I think is an important thing to think about more coming from, from, uh, from kind of product ideas versus creative ideas, you could say. And as you mentioned at the beginning, like after, after we worked together at McCann, I left and was in a, uh, a tech startup um, and had to learn a whole, whole new set of skills in terms of um, what's, kind of, what's kind of written down and explained versus the real game you're playing, I should say. And, you know, my, our founder, who's a, you know, I don't like the phrase, but serial entrepreneur, right? Guy's done this before and built and sold many, many, multi, many multi-million pound um, businesses. He always talked about two layers of inception. So, you know, there's, there's the game that everybody can see, which is on your website. And, you know, if you, if you start to get traction, guess what? People are watching and you're going to get rivals and people are going to see, Hey, that looks interesting. Can I get there? Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, the, you know, Jamie would always say, I want one layer of inception below that. So what's actually going on, not what people can see, but also but expect your rivals to get there quite quickly too, because if you're in the right game, there's going to be lots of other smart people playing with you. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when you're dealing with the investment community, who are looking for winners. They're going to go get that, but what's going on. Okay. Go one level deeper. So what's the thing that actually is a little bit more obscure that you're building, be it a data advantage or a technology advantage or, or the, the, the hidden way that you're going to make money that isn't, replicable and, and easily copyable because um if you don't have a clue of that then you're not going to be building the right kind of business so i think when you're when you're dealing with ideas in the in the kind of creative space as i say you've got a you've got a it comes out early but look after it in the right way type mm-hmm. idea and if your business if, you, if, if your idea is a business idea have those two layers of inception have one layer deeper of like what most people can't see and then have a layer deeper than that, which is what you really want to hang on to that only you can see for now. And if you keep that, if you can keep that nurtured, you will find that you will gain both investment and use attraction probably too, because it's going to be something really unique or different in the space that no one else has thought of yet. And again, you know, getting past the obvious stuff, right? It's like mm. everyone oh, got an idea to make it the, Airbnb of or the Uber of insert category X. Right, right. Guess what? Smart people have already been there. Right. So that, that isn't going to be that isn't going to be the case. It needs to be something deeper, and ideally two layers deeper. That um, that's really the heart of what you're talking about. And do you think the internet's made that harder? Because uh, I think the internet has has as with most things um, harder uh, and easier at the same time. Yeah, and accelerated. Yeah. So. Um, everything happens a lot quicker because things are much more visible. Things are much more analyzable. Um, the hive uh, analysis slash brain slash will force force ideas to come to market hey, it's a, and it's a for, fail it's a for, succeed more quickly. It's a forcing function, isn't it? The internet. It is indeed, and I think you know, scarier than the speed is the is the acceleration. Mm. It's not how quick it happens; it's the fact that it's happening quicker every day. Mm. and you know there's a there's there's a, i remember i remember the charts that were used for like oh my god look how quick instagram is growing about how long it took radio then tv then youtube then instagram to get to a million users and now like and now instagram which what which then in 2000 whatever was the oh my god look how quick it is now that's being used by tiktok as part of the look how slow it was in in the past so 
you know, the rate of change of where we are on the curve is only trending in one way. We're becoming more globally connected, which turns, you know, potential, potential audiences from the millions now to the, to the billions and something can, can kick off and, and flash around the world. So this, this, the potential scale, the potential speed to scale is vast. Um, that can become, that can become draining, but not for the right idea. Right. It's just, it's just, it's, it's not, um, it's not scary if you've got something that's going to connect right, because the fact that you've got a smartphone in, you know, people's hands from Mumbai to Accra to, you know, anywhere else you could put a point on the world now, mm-hmm. it, it's an exciting proposition for the right, for the right idea and the right, um, the right opportunity. No, I, I agree. And then, um, yeah, number three, you've got your advice on, on making global work. Right. Yeah. So I mean, we talked about, as I say, you've got a, you've got a, You've got audiences in the billions now. That didn't. That did not used to be the case. But the internet has caused uh, this this level of connection around business and brands and properties and, and ideas that I mean, you know, most of us now quite quickly are playing a global game. Um, and I think you know, seeing you guys at forty two courses and the, just a map of people around the world and where your ideas connected and mm. it's like well, I remember that in the early days one of the, one of the kind of most interesting things is like what how did somebody in you know X country X find out about this and then start buying courses. And like, you've got, you know, people in it's incredible. learning behavioral economics from Rory Sutherland. And it's like, it's an amazing world we live in now. So I think, um, you know, I've, I've done a lot of global stuff just as I kind of progressed through my career and you moved from being a domestic, domestic agency to just dealing with regions. And now as I say, I've got this Amazon responsibility across lots of countries and in, you know, all the countries, um, lots of companies and lots of countries around the world. Mm -hmm. As a wise man once said to me, um, you've got two ears and one mouth for a reason. And I think the, for, for anyone who's dealing with, um, with a, with a global role and, and, and constituents and stakeholders around the world, the thing to watch out for is this, I'm from the home office and I'm here to tell you how to do it mentality that can Mm. be, baked into kind of particular American and British kind of corporate culture mm. um, and centralized command and control. Not sure. I think, I think, you know, you've got to trust local knowledge now and you've got to, you've got to, whenever you find yourself in a new cultural or, or geographic environment, two, ear, two ears, one mouth, take the time to listen to the people because you don't understand, you probably don't understand the business culture. Mm-hmm. We don't understand the, the the wider customer or consumer culture around that outside, and if you don't understand these things, you're going to make some mistakes if you try and and, and impose stuff too quickly. And this, yeah. you know, this this idea of culture, this is the this is the 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 lodestone for for the company I'm in right now. So um, you, you mentioned I'm, I've been with Interpublic Group for, for quite a while and a couple of different stints. Um, my my base camp right now is Initiative Media, the media agency. Um, which has been working with Amazon since 2014. Uh, and, you know, our, our phrase, our thing that defines us versus our, versus our peer set and where we built our, you know, both the way that we recruit and train our people, but also the, the kind of technology that underpins the way we do media planning uh, and buying is, and all our other tools, is around this idea of cultural velocity mm-hmm. because we think culture is what connects brands to people, but also it's what connects people to people. And, you know, over-investing and understanding culture is how we win. Um, and we, you know, by 
various metrics have been the most successful media agency in, in the world over the last three years in, in building the company we have, as we've really cemented around this idea of cultural velocity. Uh, as part of that, we, we published a, uh, a book actually recently, working with you know, one of the, the world's most preeminent marketing professors, a gentleman called uh, Jonah Berger at Wharton School, mm-hmm. who's a fascinating guy. And you know, I, I recommend his, his library to, to anyone who wants to understand you know, the way modern marketing works from how ideas take, take seed and, and travel around the world in his book, Contagious. Um, obviously, most importantly, up to including cultural velocity, but we, we were looking for ways that brands can harness culture to, to, to move fast and win quicker than their rivals, you know, velocity being, being the key word. And super, super interesting findings as we went around the world and did, did the primary research that led to this book about just how different cultures are in different countries for, for the same brand to operate in. A real challenge for global brands. You know, I'm, I'm sitting there, uh, I'm, you know, we use, this, we use this work daily on Amazon. Amazon means something completely different in Australia to what it does in India, to what it means in the US. The shopping culture is different. What it means to be a global American mega tech brand is different. You've got different rivals. You've got different gifting seasons. You've got different holidays. And to, to, to try and apply one size fits all in the important stuff in the business just puts you in, in, the, in the wrong space. Mm. Yeah, not, not saying we don't have to fight the tension of that because obviously there's efficiency plays in doing things once. And you've got effective displays and connecting locally. Um, and that, again, it's a balance, right? There's no one answer. And there's a, different, there's a different answer for what you do with how you take payments to how you make TV ads to mm-hmm. how you work with, you know, influence, influencer celebrity culture to whether you do or don't sponsor sport or which sport is it. However you cut it, whatever the challenge is, um, that, that balance between the, the, the globe and the local is at the heart of good business. And as I say, anyone who tells you they've got the answer, they haven't got, they haven't got the complexity of the problem you're dealing with right now. Mm-hmm. But listen, listen and understand the culture and you can't, you can't go wrong when it comes to dealing with work around the world. Yeah, I mean, I almost felt on some occasions, you know, when you watch those awful global ads that, you know, made in one place and then sent around the world. And if you ever travel and you're in another country watching those ads and you just... Yeah realize what a massive gulf there is between what yeah. is in the ad and what's actually really on the ground. You think, yeah, almost, it's true, true. Is, it, is it almost like worse to have those ads out there than, than nothing at all? Because I don't know. It's, and, and for some, for some categories, for some businesses, I bet the answer is yes. For other yes. businesses, I bet the answer is no. And actually yep. there's, you know, having done a bit of work around um, uh, premium alcohol, that, that vibe works very well. Mm-hmm. And actually what you want to do if you're, if you're dealing with a kind of, you know, super premium vodka right. or tequila, say in the spirits world, and right. you're, then you want to project a kind of the, the global image that's slightly not quite of anywhere right. is actually right. right for everywhere. And, you know, it's very powerful business around, you know, you, you go to GT3, you look at Grey Goose, I'll pick mm-hmm. an example. And there's a consistency to the way the brand appears and it kind of isn't really of any place. Like it's, mm-hmm. It, I think that originally was it's, French, it's French vodka, right? That's the story. And it's, you know, from the Champagne or the Cognac region. And it's got this goose on it that maybe lives in France, but kind of looks like a Canadian snow goose to me. And like, and it comes from its fame. And the reason that I think it was Bacardi Martini broke single brand records and they bought it back in the day comes from a culture that pops up in Ibiza in New York and Singapore and Cape Town. Like it's not a, 
it's not of a place, even though it's a French vodka owned by an by American, I guess, company and and selling a global lifestyle culture. So if you if you get that culture right, and and if it's global, right, which is what that is, which is why premium premium luxury alcohol can work very well. You're right. Everyone, right. In world, everyone in the world wants to drink the tequila that George Clooney enjoys with his friends on the hacienda they bought in in Mexico. Voila, Casamigos tequila. Mm-hmm. And I think that you know that the the globality of the culture makes it makes it right. Mm-hmm. Cars, I think, are less good. Mm. I, feel, I feel the car. I and mean, this is you know, a personal thing. I'm watching also auto for a while, but global ads there can be just not right anywhere. And then you get to some of the disastrous stuff that you see from from brands that try and co-opt a global celeb and jam it down everyone's throat for a fast food or or QSR type category, and then we're in we're in a crazy world. But I think the that that point about you know things that things that go around the world and, and work everywhere. Um, it's a cultural understanding, and I look at look at phenomenons and things like gaming, esports, and I, if I if I drop in on what the culture of League of Legends is in South Korea, South Africa, or South America, I get quite a similar group of people with the same kind of reference points, if that makes sense. So you can do stuff consistently there, mm-hmm. and you're not playing to geography; you're playing to culture. And again, if you if your brain's oriented around that, like, do I understand the culture my brand operates in? Global can become easier. Mm-hmm. If, you're, if you're hamstrung or stuck on the world of like demographics of where people live and or age and stuff, it's much trickier and you end up with these horrible, you know, doesn't apply to anyone. How can this, how can this stuff get made? Who is involved in the decision-making? Do you not understand anything? And the answer is they didn't take the time to understand the right thing. Probably right. passed some other test somewhere because again, you know, people are intelligent, but, if it doesn't click with the culture, it doesn't really click. It doesn't connect. No, I agree. And I think speaking of culture, that kind of leads on to the next point around, you know, people and, yeah. and, and ultimately how important they are in, in any business. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, again, a- agency background, right. And the, someone famously once said the entire value of the agency goes down in the, in the elevator or the lift at the end of each day. Like, what have you got? I don't, actually believe that i think there's there's brands in in service businesses as as we can all see as well but um but yes people are are the heart of uh of any of any business you know if you're a tech company your algorithms is only as, are only as good as the motivation of the developers who write them and again that sounds cliche but i think you know what i mean mm-hmm. um and there's a you know the, the further you move on in your career the more you realize that your your job is actually finding motivating and you know, arming resources, people who are going to do the hard work that, that you don't do anymore on the coal face. And I, again, I kind of, in doing the retrospect on this, remember wise words from a, from a wise man I work with who said, "Look, there's, skills will change. Whatever the job's in, you need people with specific skills." And that sort of seems really obvious. He goes, "But what you, what you won't be able to change, or what I've never found to be wrong, is that you could pretty much put people into two camps." Um, regardless of the function they're in, the skills they have, and you obviously want the right people with the right skills and the right functions. So I find that people tend to be either radiators or drains. Do they kind of add to the energy of a team or do they suck away? And at all costs, be wary of drains. You could have someone who has all the talent in the world who pulls magic out of a hat, but, but, but over time and ever more quickly, if that person is unable to kind of function within the environment of, of the team that they, that they just by definition live in, 
and it's everybody else is having to to kind of make up for that mm-hmm. you've got a problem coming because good people just don't tolerate that and mm-hmm. i think you see you know you see the um the uh increase i guess transparency in corporate culture and it comes from things like Glassdoor, but just you know the world we're in now where there's a sense of what it's like to work at a place and the value that companies put on you know being rated as good places to work by employees huge we spend a ton of time on that it's a real focus for us to and it drives a lot of our executive decisions. You know, this has been a very, very strange year in many ways, 2020. But one good thing that will come out of it, I think, is a, a kind of boardroom down transparency about what it's like to work in a place and things around representation of gender or racial identity across different levels of companies. And there's, there's, there's very important stuff going on. Um, you you will not you will not keep you will not find keep trade and motivate and promote good people if you have too many drains in and around your business. Mm-hmm. Um, and it seems harsh, but take the action. You rip off that band aid. You know if you see if there's a if there's a, a, a problem with someone based on attitude and mentality um, and way of working, that's that's tough. It's tough to, to put up with. So you need to find it, identify it, and like help that person get better or move them on or find another place for them because the the drain will kill the team pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, it's, it's not a skills thing. Like I say, if I, if I try and find, uh, you know, as I said at the beginning, I loathe there being one answer. Um, I think ambition for me is a big part of it. The thing that determines people who, who, um, who believe things can and will get better because ambition fosters positivity and collaboration. Um, usually, I mean, ambition without any collaboration could be an absolute nightmare. We've all seen those people, and they don't tend to last either. But I think it's you know there's 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 quite trite literature around um, passion being the key, and do do something you love, and if you're in an area that you love, then you can't fail in the end. I don't know about that. I think that's pretty tough. I think you can find you might find the gap in the market for your particular passion, but is there is there a market in the gap? You know, if you <laughs> care about something x no one else does i'm not sure you can make a business out of that mm-hmm. and and again you know business involves working with other people and passion be quite individual but i think everyone quite likes to be around ambitious people and it's, it's infectious and contagious in a way that passion is but has a little more um direction pointed towards it as well yeah no i mean i agree i mean i think a lot of this stuff as i think probably you're you're going to mention is is all, all ladders back to mindset doesn't it i mean yeah whenever you read about success um normally the first thing that that is discussed is is having the right mindset um i think a lot of what you've just said is is all back to that isn't it it's kind of attitude trumps trumps everything um exactly that and that that growth mindset of, of of belief of like not believing that everything's you know you're great again ego is a killer here and and ego will, will keep you in a place where you're, um, uh, you know, st- stuck isn't the right word, but like if, if things are going great, the ego can get very puffed up by that. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, that doesn't help you move on. That doesn't help you get to, to the next level or work out what, what growth looks like for you. And a growth mindset says, I'll take feedback. I welcome feedback. I seek it out. I ask for it because mm-hmm. I know that if I have the right attitude and I ask the right people, for the right feedback it helps me get better mm-hmm. and that isn't a negative that's a positive it's not pointing out problems it's opportunities for growth if you take that stuff in the right way and i think 
you know, the right people, the radiators behave that way. The drains don't, they don't seek feedback, they shut down, they don't want to talk, they don't want to help other people out and give that feedback. Mm-hmm. Bad, bad place to be, bad, bad energy. Um, I think the last, the last thing I'd say is, you know, as, as we've moved out of a, a world, you know, the world that my father lived in one, one company's whole career, that's very rare now. Um, you will be moving around businesses because there's fluidity in, in, in labor market, which is a great thing. And it allows brilliant people to find the right roles for themselves. Imperative now that you, you know, follow great people. And, and you'll find this happens that people will, will move and will want to, you know, people move into situations with challenges baked in. That tends to be where growth comes from, right? There's a problem you can go fix that. And if you do, you, you right. move on. It's, like, right. hard, it's hard to get the job as a CEO of Apple. You know, things are going pretty well. They've got a plan. Right. Um, you can get a job as a CEO of, I don't know, call it Nokia a few years ago, where it's like, you haven't got, you haven't got the, uh, it's not quite as obvious where you go next. We need a genius to come in and, and take us on that journey. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, people bring the good people they know with them because again, the right attitude and the right mentality and the right mindset is what, is what you're looking for. So it, it isn't even the skills, mm-hmm. I would say. It's very interesting. I, I came back to IPG after my stint out in, in startup land, not based on, into a different part of the company I never worked at before mm-hmm. and not based on, on being, you know, a media specialist by any means. I never worked in media before I took on the job as chief client officer for the media agency globally, mm-hmm. but it was based on people. I followed someone who I knew was going to change the world. Mm-hmm. And if you've got a chance to be part of making history, it's, it's attitude based and it's person based. So follow those people and find those people you're like-minded with who are going to do great things because all of you will go up together. And it isn't, uh, right. it isn't, uh, it's not a straight ladder. It's kind of, you know, you go left and right, you jump across in here, but at the end of the game, you look down and you see that you've all moved up to where, to where you can get to, to where you've got the capacity to be. Yeah, no, and it's the speed as well, isn't it? I mean, there's that great Biggie Smalls lyric, you know, I climb the ladder of success, escalator style. Um, escalator style. Which I've always, always liked, yeah, the idea that, you know, you, you rise with, with the tide, don't you? You hang on to people's coattails and if, if there's someone yeah. smart doing good things and you're associated with it, it rubs off on, on you by, by association. Exactly. And hey, and be in the right game, right? Like the rising tide, you want to be in an industry that's growing and has more opportunity. It's, you know, it's right. tough to do in, in, you know, whatever. We can all insert the industry that's, that's struggling at the time you listen to this. Mm-hmm. Um, hey, that's, that's true. But like, with, assume, again, assume all the good people will gravitate towards the good opportunities and that's who you're competing with if you're in a, in a kind of personal growth story, even in an expanding pie, right? That brings in more and more talented people. Mm-hmm. Um, and those, you know, the right attitude and the right mindset will resonate with the people who will give you your next job. That'd be, I guess, my, my kind of closing point on that. And if you're recruiting or if you're building teams and you're on the other side, like I am, you know that you look for people with the right, the right mindset to help get you there. Right. And then um, your, your next point, which is number five, which is kind of related is this idea of kind of personal style. And yeah, that the first point is that uh, there's that great Shakespearean, quote you know there's nothing either good or bad but thinking makes it so yeah i've added added by yourself there i'm no i'm no i'm no shakespearean expert but um yeah i think it's you know it's again like trying to come up with a list of 10 things that are really important the way that you the way that you kind of conduct yourself is obviously a part of that it's super hard to 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 think of something that was 
relevant or applicable to 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 you know anyone who might be listening in all businesses because I've got an idea of how you do this working in an ad agency, but that's very that's very um, limited in terms of its scope. But I've got an idea of how you do it in a startup as well. But my my kind of observation and thinking about it all is like I've always tried to. Um, well, I always have to fight to because I can be a bit emotional about stuff to remember it's never as good or as bad as it seems in the moment. And actually uh, stability and the, and the ability to kind of like have that perspective on what's right in front of you in the day, in the moment, like, you know, on stage at a presentation, in an investor meeting, in whatever, whatever, whatever the scenario is like the, it can be easy for the goods to seem wonderful and the, and the lows to seem crushing. And of course, you know, but have a good night's sleep the next day, things don't look as bad. Like you've got to remember that in the moment because that level headedness and that kind of like balance of things is actually an important way that you conduct yourself and an important part of the journey to becoming a leader. That's kind of way where people are expected to, to, to be once they leave, once they lead teams and people. Um, and for me, the, the kind of part, the, 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 the part of that is that, you know, I think again, a, from a leadership point of view, the, the word that you tend to get when you go to most trading courses is about authenticity. And I think that's, that's, um, that's probably right. I'm not going to argue with the literature and with the, and with the professionals who go, you can, you can lead from many different styles and, you know, people who are naturally extrovert, introvert, have got different things to kind of work on to balance around that, but like be authentic and don't try and change who you are because you're going to get, seen through and things feel fake and no one likes to follow someone who seems fake. I guess the, the level beyond below that for me, and maybe this again, it's just authentically me, but again, I thought I'd share is that I think it's pretty important to while, while you have to take the work seriously, don't take yourself too seriously. Mm -hmm. um, and that's probably a change from, that's probably a change from, from what I observed in leaders when I started out in my career. Mm -hmm. And there's some, there's something in the management culture about that where there was kind of a, you know, uh, one, one way to do high status gravitas and that was it. And you saw these kind of like, these kind of alpha figures who built businesses up through the eighties and who seem sort of laughable now and the world doesn't look too favorably on these, on these guys, unless they're able to I have think. some sense of, you know, have some sense of uh, a little bit more self-awareness than that. I'd say. I, I, th I think it's a really interesting point. I mean, I think, I think it's Elon Musk who said, you know, he talks about these, this, this idea of attack vectors, you know, yeah. things that leave you open to attack. And it seems yeah. like being an arsehole, even if, you're <laughs> talent, even if you're talented, probably comes and bites you. Correct. Well, this some, is guy, what, some point. What, what did he want to call his child? 42 backspace. X-A-E-X-E-1-1-2 or whatever. It's ridiculous. And if you're going to, if you want to live in a world where you, you while going to the Mars also have a company that builds flamethrowers and it's kind of side gig, you're running the world's most valuable car company and you're going to be so polymath. Like if you expect just only, only someone like Hitler would also expect full adulation from everyone as a result of that. And if right. you're not willing to, I mean, he's a really, he's a really interesting character, Elon and the way various stock prices are going, he's kind of on the journey to being the world's richest man alongside all this, which is pretty amazing. Yeah. Um, He's also going to like go on a Joe Rogan podcast and like be a bit awkward and, and smoke weed and like yep. not worry about what that does to the Tesla share price briefly. And again, there's an authenticity to it all, which is we're all people and, and people are strange and flawed and, and odd and have foibles. And that point about attack vectors is nice. Like if you spend all your time 
trying to squash there being any chance of that. You're not really focusing on doing what you could be doing. You're just showing yeah. up defenses you don't need to, you don't need to build. No, I agree, and I think he's he sort of seems to get that that right more often than not, and that he sort of does have a sense of humour, and he kind of is happy to laugh at himself and yeah, exactly, you know, not take the world or himself too seriously. Yeah. Um, but, and I, but hey, we'll be building rockets to go to space, and you bet that he's not cutting corners on safety or or the engineering or the science behind that. And you know, Teslas amazingly built cars. Mm-hmm. Not it's not a joke product. It's a, mm-hmm. it's a super serious product, a super serious company. Mm-hmm. But, you know, there's something in there which, is, which allows Mavericks and, and, and some of the crazy ones to be part of that and to shine. And that helps. It's not a bad thing. That's the key, that's the key point. That makes uh, the company stronger and their products better. No, I think so. I think it's also very human to be sort yeah. of... Um, what, what's it called? Ludicrous mode, right? In, in yeah. the Tesla. That, 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 that's not car people talk. They, it'd be like turbo overdrive or, you know what I mean? Like... Yep. Like real people would we'll, we'll call it ludicrous mode. Mm-hmm. And that makes it, and that, that's just cool. Mm-hmm. That's yeah, cool. And, and then shows he's got a sense of humor as, as yeah, well. Exactly. Um, exactly, exactly. And yeah, so I think this brings us to kind of this is half, halfway through your, your top 10 list. And the next one, which I think is a really interesting one, um, and definitely agree with you that it, it's kind of really under discussed and, and talked about is this idea of, of of training in the sense that you know elite athletes and other types of performers kind of train religiously and and everything is about that extra 10 minutes on the playing field or whatever it is of, of practice but that's something that we don't really do in in business bizarrely. Yeah. yeah so i think um it's a, it's a great point i mean the 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 expectations on people and then and how training fits with that. I'll go back to actually the, the kind of endpoint we just mentioned now about what what got you to where you are now isn't what's going to take you to the next level. That's something you really see. Um, and something that you know I felt coming up through the career can be a bit unfair. It's like you get asked to be excellent at something and then you the next role for you in a company, any kind of hierarchy or like building something is not based on what you did before, because it's something new for you. Mm-hmm. How are you meant to do that? How are you meant to get good at the net? How are you meant to get ready for the next role if all you do is spend all your time being excellent at the role you're in right now? And that can be a promotional hierarchy thing. I remember seeing that in particular where it's most notable was in working creative agencies and actually in the, you know, the, the department full of copywriters and art directors, where I thought it was always really crazy that you were, you were basically forced, not forced, you, you succeeded by being an expert practitioner. Like, can you create something? And it's, it's very bounded. It's, you know, TV ad or it's a mm-hmm. web program, or whatever it is. Like, the creative, the creative uh, endeavor to create something from nothing. And there are people who are better and worse than that. And they've got all their own tools and techniques of how you become as good as you can be. Mm-hmm. Suddenly then it's like, oh, okay, managerial responsibilities. Now you've got to train other people. You've got to help other people do that and coax it out of them. Mm-hmm. There's a heavily, heavily good chance that you have zero, you've got zero training or experience. Mm-hmm. You may have an aptitude for it, but like, what's to say that you, that the great creator can become the great teacher? Very hard to do. And, um, and I remember sitting there going, seems a very strange way, a strange model to have kind of survived where we just kind of hope that the people who are good at something could also be good at coaxing out of others. We got it a bit more down the business side. The creative side was very, very tough. So 
but that 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 point at heart of like of of people who are really elite and you mentioned athletes we talked about it a bit before you know Olymp olympians are the ultimate example an olympic 100 meters runner you or say 100 meters runner if you believe the olympics is the pinnacle of your of the of the of your career you train for four years for 10 seconds now uh most of us aren't in on in industries where 10 seconds of performance every four years can kind of pay the bills and keep us uh, fed and happy and thriving and, and looking after our families. I don't know what the pressure for that would be like. I'd imagine it must be completely crazy. Sure, right? You wake up on the morning with a cold and it's like, oh, your four years have basically gone down the, mm. gone down the drain. So the pressure must be extraordinary. I think I'd rather be, uh, have, have a, a little spread around the risk of how I make my money. But, um, but there, but you know that that principle of like you can't be expected to perform without having some element of training, I think is something that business is bad on. Yeah, you, you, I I listen to quite a lot of um, uh, podcast type material, audiobook material from like military high performers. Just kind of find it fascinating as a so as Jocko, a Jocko Willink type and 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 individuals exactly. And I think you know he's he's a really interesting example. So. Why is he a success in his new world? He's obviously a success in the SEALs because he was able to take down buildings and do all the stuff that SEALs do. Mm -hmm. And then, like, you know, clearly is for a certain subset of, of business audience the kind of now de facto voice of what military strategy looks like. And he used to, you know, we used to read Sun Tzu books. And, like, you know, there's always been an overlap between military strategy and kind of corporate strategy and a sort of admiration of how the military is able to... Mm -hmm. to to do some things. Does it always translate? Not sure. Now he's been able to translate very clearly. And you see a lot of people who read, who read extreme ownership and listen to the podcast and stuff. Yep. I think that's because his job was training in between. So if you look at that guy's story, came out of active duty in the SEAL teams and then ran tactical training. So right. the whole job was like getting people when they're not on mission to be ready to execute the mission perfectly. And I think that's what we admire in in in, in high performing you know elite military units. It's special forces stuff, not not regular army stuff. The amount of time they spend training to to do the mission, not on mission. And I go, there's something that we can learn from that in business. And you know, we just expect people to kind of through osmosis organically acquire the skills that will make them better, and then we do or don't have training programs to help with that. But the ratio is way out of whack. And I think you know, if you're after elite performance. The more time you're training, not just doing, the better. Because training comes with observation, analysis, you know, a more formal feedback loop of like, how did that work? Mm -hmm. Look at your performance. What went wrong? How could you do that better next time? Visualization, all these things that are, mm -hmm. that, you know, that we've got a, a body of evidence um, mm -hmm. are, are, are important for, for success. And at the very least, right, if you don't believe anything else, the, the, the truism is uh, ascribed to our friend Gary Player, the golfer of like, yeah, the more I practice, the luckier I get. Mm. You know, that seems to hold true. So the more you practice, even if it's just luck at the back of that, why would you not set yourself up for success? And I think what's, what's really interesting and, you know, why I kind of admire the platform you've built is this is an area where, again, if you go back to that kind of you're competing in, in a corporate world, companies, mm -hmm. some are better, some are worse. Companies aren't great doing this at letting you really kind of plot through a in, in aggregate plot through a training program and like get better and have that set that reflection and self-analysis mm -hmm. so it's kind of up to you as an individual 
Mm-hmm. But this is good because this means that if you are an individual who can like really see a path here and you can pick up the right skills and learn and train, mm-hmm. you can win. You can get an advantage over your rivals for jobs, positionings, promotions, whatever. So mm-hmm. it's a place where some, some personal initiative can really cause lead to some personal advantage. Um, and, you know, that's something that I'm keen on for myself. So I, I definitely advise everybody to like find and force the time to do the trading because it will pay back in, in spades. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with you 100%. Um, I mean, there's that, I'll get the quote wrong now, but, you know, the, the best investment you can make is in yourself. I think it was Warren Buffett or whoever, someone, someone, someone like that. Um, and, I, you know, I think it is true. And, you know, also this idea of, you know, your journey of learning really only starts after you leave school. Yeah. Um, right, and, which, is, which is a formalized learning environment so right. it's a weird thing of like we've got these structures and systems and we can argue about how outdated they are and whether they were just created to to pump out a long line of factory workers which right you've got formalized learning that like it is good but i think you know there's there's stuff you learn about problem solving and the way to deal, deal with problems and communication skills and all of that that's super useful in, in schools and universities but then yep. as you say there's a ton of learning that has to happen after that and we just flip off to it now we're now in the work world not the learning world Mm-hmm. And that feels really, really archaic. And I think, you know, having, having the discipline, you, that, that quote, Buffett or not, the key word is investment. Treat it like an investment, not, you know, there's a difference between time spent and time invested. Stuff you have to do. And got to spend time cleaning the kitchen or going to the grocery store, sure. Or you invest time into something. And if it's investment, then it should have reward. Mm. And you should almost, you know, you should write for yourself the, uh, the investment perspectives on it. What am I going to do? What do I need to get out of it? How can I track that it's going well? Mm. You know, report, report to that board of investors in yourself, which is yourself. Yeah. As to how it's going and how it's progressing and where you need more or less investment and what you want to get out of it. Because your own going, yeah. personal KPIs almost. Yeah, know. exactly. Exactly. Um, you can say, that can sound a bit like robotic and weird and all get a bit Tim Ferriss. But, um, but the mindset's right. I think if you, if you treat it like treat this time as investment, then, then you should expect return and yeah. you can set yourself up for return. No, no. I mean, I, I agree with you. And I think it goes back to that point earlier around, you know, two types of people, radiators versus drains. I also think for me that, you know, there's two types of people, curious people and non-curious people. Um, mm. And it kind of astounds me, you know, when I meet people who just don't seem to be, curious about anything um exactly and and it sort of staggers staggers me to sort of to, to be able to think that there there are people that are just not curious about yeah you know, furthering well, themselves in some way or understanding more about the world or acquiring yeah. a new skill or questioning the status quo you know even like why do we do the things that we do and why do i go to get up at 9 a.m or 8 a.m every day and go to work and etc etc exactly another thing that maybe has been forced by by the year of 2020 for people to have that kind of lack of acceptance of status quo and analysis it actually leads me to my my seventh kind of yeah principle which is um which is around uh a bit of unsafety is that a word lack of safety is a good is a good thing yeah i mean you can uh, feel unsafe that, can't you yeah it's um i think the the that you know the right people 
curiosity is a kind of uh, an output of a desire for kind of change and improvement and, and betterment. And there's, um, there's, you know, I've got a, a belief and like, this is again, something I've discussed with, you know, HR and trading professionals and various fairly high level forums as we kind of work out how you want to empower a spirit of like um, entrepreneurship throughout a company mm-hmm. and have people to be in a space where they want to, you know, push and, and, and drive new things. Mm-hmm. And, and safety, safety versus comfort. And I think, um, and there's lots of written, there's lots of written about this. I think safety is good because it allows you to be uncomfortable. And I think that the that growth comes through, through, through discomfort sometimes, because if you, if you're ticking along and everything's great, where's the impetus to change and where's the impetus for innovation? Um, uh, Sesti being mother of, of invention. Mm-hmm. There's a, you know, there's an analogy about lobsters and I'm not going to get Jordan Peterson hierarchy of lobsters on you here, but you know, they're weird creatures and they're very weird creatures. I do lots of diving. You see them, they're truly bizarre, but they, they, they grow to fill out their shell and then they shed their entire shell and then grow a new one and it's bigger. And they kind of bounded at each stage of the development by this hard construct of the lobster shell. Mm-hmm. And by all accounts, it's pretty uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And that discomfort forces them to smash out of it and grow and get bigger. Now, we're not lobsters, we're people, but that, I think that analogy makes sense, right? A, a continued feeling of comfort should be a bit of a watch out. Mm. It's like if you're just kind of comfortable and things are easy, it can be pleasant for a while, but for the right, but it's not a great place to be for growth. And I think, you know, there's, there's another little, little tidbit of, uh, if you find yourself as the smartest person in the room a lot, then they say you're, you're probably in the wrong rooms. Mm. And I think that's, that's, a, that's a kind of, you know, colloquial folk expression, the same thing, which is like, the ego will tell you that's great. Mm. Oh, I'm, I'm being invited to come and give the same talk on stages and everywhere around the world. And maybe it's a Ted talk, but like yeah. those Ted talks from three years ago, just seem a bit out of date now. So you see someone doing the same shtick and the same material. It's like, mm-hmm. yeah, but what have you done since then? What's recent? Mm-hmm. What's current? What have you learned? Um, mm-hmm. And that point before about, the best people are always curious and always learning. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that there's a, and I get a bit, I get a bit woo on you here, but like I did some, uh, some work with a catalyst again, as when I was in the startup and as advisor to our, to our chairman and like the, these guys, they've got some pretty out there concepts and it kind of comes to ancient Hebrew wisdom and that's, that's fine. That's all cool. I'm no, no opinion about veracity of that, but there's a really interesting idea about making yourself a vessel which is what I've really connected with, with, with Marcus. He's like, you have a capacity in, in your vessel for achievement or growth or light, or you could go religious with it, or you can go very practical with it. And it's like, mm-hmm. what are you doing to grow the vessel? That was kind of his phrase. It's like, if you, he goes, and you will find that when you have more capacity, you can do more things and you'll be given more responsibility, but it doesn't just happen naturally. You have to do the work to grow the vessel to attract the kind of opportunities. Now you can think of that, as I say, in a very spiritual context, or actually just kind of go down more of the kind of Gary player thing of like, do the work and see if good things happen. Mm-hmm. My observation would be that if you do the work, good things happen. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I'll leave everyone else to kind of delve down the catalyst angle from there. If you, if you do it, don't want to, but grow, grow the vessel. And it only comes from a bit of, a bit of discomfort. Yeah. I mean that, that psychological like- safety plus environmental discomfort is a great area for some personal growth that pushes you to do new things. Yeah. I mean, and if you think about it on a fundamental language essentially that's what the role of a parent is for the young child right to give them the psychological safety in order to 
to, to, be, to go be, out into the world and, and make mistakes or, you know, even as simple exactly. as falling over in the playground and turning around and having someone there to reassure you. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, I mean, I, th I think that stuff makes a lot of sense and it certainly makes more sense to me than the, this kind of, you know, law of attraction manifestation stuff of, you know, if I believe great things will happen to me, they, they will, yeah. in reality, yeah. you've actually got to go and do the great things first and then. <laughs> yeah, I find there's a, there's a bit of an arrogance in that. It's kind of like, oh, what, you're going to believe more than the other 9 billion people on the planet, are you? Right, and exactly. Somehow you'll be rewarded. I don't know about that. I think there's a bit of, um, yeah, again, some survivorship bias in that one. <laughs> I, I think so. And also, sadly, you know, that the, the people want to think there's an easy way to achieve great right. things right and if someone comes along saying hey you just all you got to do is just sit around thinking this stuff and it will happen that sounds like a lot easier than actually doing a lot of hard work and, <laughs> um, yeah correct again I, I would imagine that's not so prevalent when you get near the sharp end of people who are really really successful and had to work hard to to achieve things but um mm -hmm. and if arguably a bit a bit insidious for some other people who found themselves in that position to to identify that, that might be the key. Mm -hmm. ah, sure. There's a line of song. I'd rather be working for a paycheck than waiting to win the lottery. It's like mm -hmm. do the work. I think that do the work and have the ambition rather than just kind of hope. Does seem yeah. to be, seem hope, to increase, hope, hope. increase the likelihood of success, shall we say. Hope is not a strategy. Hope is not a strategy. No. Um, and that, that leads us on, I think, to your next point, number number eight, the kind of connection to the side of the discomfort and yes, you, you, about mo a movement, move it, movement. Yeah, yeah, indeed. So, um, yeah, really coming out of out of startup land, and again, I'll you know, it's a, I'll tell you a, a, a boring to you but interesting to me story of the, the little startup company that we had. But a quick bit of context is useful. So, take yourself back to the heady days of two thousand and. 11 2012 and where mobile technology was at right now which you probably can't even remember but if you watch a watch a uh, movie from that time you'll be like oh my god what is that thing they've got in their hands so we're we're like iphone one early smartphones world and um mm. and the business that that i that i ended up joining is you know early stages i've been acquired by um some investor slash operators as a um uh a, a Java-based technology platform that will allow you to effectively, it's a, a gross simplification of some very clever technology, write code once and deploy across all the mobile platforms that were in play then. So the new exciting, sexy iOS, but also Android that was a few years old. Um, Samsung had their own one, Omni. There mm -hmm. was Windows Mobile still in market. Blackberry was still a player. So you had this world of like, there are lots of, there are now, there's now an exploding world of smartphones. Mm -hmm. apps are becoming a thing but you've got this platform mess of having to write different language code and maintain all the products across all the different platforms that seems like a nightmare if only there was a kind of write once and deploy everywhere single source code product um have been found by um by our kind of founder lead investors uh in canada bought the company and then said, we can do something with this. They kind of run out of ideas or money, the guys who'd originally started it, so got, got acquired. Mobile moves really, really fast. Uh, we'll talk about that in a sec, Let's, you know. Um, but mobile moves fast to the point where within a year, 
it's pretty apparent that some of those platforms are not really going to be here to stay. Samsung are dumping Omni to move on to Android. Windows Mobile was preparing for its kind of evolution that itself ended up as Android. Suddenly you've got an iOS Android world. BlackBerry did limp on for a bit. We had some business dealing with, dealing with BlackBerry in, in that time as we, yeah, they're, they're, they were the de facto business phone for a long time. Again, it kind of dates mm -hmm. this whole journey. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but we ended up flipping out, you know, again, if we'd said, well, our business is a multi-platform technology <laughs> solution that writes for Omni and for Windows Mobile, then your business just disappeared in a year. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, you know, the, the lesson to this is like, you cannot get too attached to the, to where you think you're going. And I think in, in startup land and in, and in, in the world of new technology, new ideas, that's just looking for their home and where they're going to land. Mm -hmm. You, the speed of movement is, is all that is imperative. Now, don't just change things and break stuff all the time. As we talked about before, some stuff has to stay consistent. And if, you know, this is your, this is your art as a, as a, as a leader in a, in a smart tech company is to have an eye on where you're going. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, not, not in, not in, um, not coincidentally, this is where having the two layers of inception in your idea is good. Cause if you've just got kind of one story and the world shifts, you find your story is not relevant. What are you going to do? And we kind of had an idea of where we were going in terms of what, um, what mobile would be good for. Um, and if I follow, if I follow the story, sorry, mobile apps would be good for, if you follow the story through of where that, that company grapple ended up, we actually ended up being acquired by, uh, in the end, what is now a huge US fintech company called Fiserv. Right. Um, and there's a journey that gets you to there, which you look back and it was working with a bank for the first time in the multi-platform world. And then I'll pivot into being a kind of like design led shop as we realized that the story was really that banking was going to go mobile. Mm -hmm. Banks were terrible at customer experience. I mean, basically what you, your, your chance to be successful in the space and to lead to the journey that led to the double acquisition was bringing customer experience through the mobile lens to, to the world of banking. Now, mm -hmm. Along the way, this amazing stuff. We built the FIFA app for the World Cup in Brazil in 2014 and all these other interesting projects. But, you know, we weren't defined by that. We weren't defined by the original tech solution. We weren't defined by some of the shiny stuff. The business value was in really bringing that, uh, bringing big part of the fintech world. Mm -hmm. So my, and again, it's a story that's very interesting to me and no one will ever write a book about it. But I think, you know, speed of movement is really, really, really important in, in, in this world. And like, it's hard to start. You need something that's a bit different from the market to get the attraction for tie good people to get investment and to get going. And hey, that's really tough. And I, and I think, you know, every year that passes, there's fewer and fewer brand new white space opportunities and the white space gets more niche. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's okay because, you know, a lot of niches. Level one, level one of internet's kind of gone now. It's been put through, but there's always space and smart people will find it. So move real quick and get going. Get, get, get started, put something in market, get to a POC, get, get moving fast. But then don't then stop would be my, my, my kind of key lessons. Like if you think the hard work's done at the launch, well, guess what guys, you didn't see nothing yet. It's the next move or two or three moves you need to make. Mm -hmm. Who knows what the application is? And like, you will come across people who see something in your business that you didn't think about yourself. If you trust those people and you value them as a, as a customer or a partner, take that advice on board and move with it because mm -hmm you're going to need someone to be paying the bills pretty soon. You don't want to be relying on investment and mm -hmm. customers are the ones that can do that for you or a new super investor. But um, yeah, keep, start fast and then keep moving to stay ahead. And you know, there's, 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 there's trite stories about um, 
Kodak invented the digital camera, left it in the lab for 10 years, mm -hmm. didn't understand what was going on with digital cameras. Digital cameras, the, the story now is Instagram, right? It's the value of Instagram versus Kodak, blah, 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 blah. Mm -hmm. um, Nokia is a more interesting story, I think. So, you know, they, they, uh, they are still around in a way that Kodak is not, a very interesting company. Mm -hmm. Yes, they invented the touchscreen iPhone looking phone before Apple were in the game and kept it in their labs and didn't bring it to market. Mm -hmm. But hey, their story goes back further. They were a paper mill and they moved into rubber and then they moved into, you know, oh, there's no paper, so we need to get to digital screen technology. And then, you know, now their business of, of medical equipment and imaging screens and building and running masks and stuff like that. They, they've been able to keep something moving and flowing. Mm. They, have, they have outlasted Kodak and they're not the, the, the death story of the 2000s. I think some people might have thought they would become. Yeah, there's some good examples of that, aren't there? I mean, like there's... Nintendo started out with kind of playing cards and, and I think Sam, Samsung started out as um, dried fish. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure. Um, I'll have to check that one, but um, my memory serves me correctly. Yeah, they started out with kind of dried fish products. And I wonder what, the, I wonder what they had in their dried fish business to let them move to, to, to technology and screens. Because you, you see it with playing cards. Like you make playing cards, you understand. Yeah, I mean, I want to play and, you know. I want, yeah, I wonder if it was a bit like the Nokia story. There may have been a, a jump in between, as in they were paper and rubber boots. And yeah. um, I agree with you. I don't know how you go from from um, dried fish to, to flat screen televisions, but well, they make very good ones. I've got a Samsung monitor right now. That I'm talking to you over. It's excellent, excellent bit of kit. So they got it right. Whatever happens. Um, and yeah, no, I think sort of kind of point number nine is again kind of related to the previous point that this idea of kind of consistency, you know, we, we've said yeah. in one, in one breath, you know, move quickly and, 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 and kind of keep moving. But at the same time, obviously there are situations, contexts where, you know, you kind of want to preserve what, what you've established. Right. Exactly. It's a very good point. So I think, yeah, back to this, there's no one playbook from the beginning, which kind of is sadly, I think always the case. Um, Sometimes the urge, sometimes it's right to like break, pivot, move on. I think the, again, it's again, a reflection on career. That's at a product technology level, that can be, that can often be the way. Be very careful at a brand level. Um, and I think there's an urge amongst marketeers and agencies to change things a little too quickly. Um, now, you don't run the same creative for 20 years. You probably don't run the same end line for 20 years, although some people have. Patek Philippe famously. You do have, if you've got a powerful brand there, there are some things that you break or you change at your peril. Um, and un the understanding of that at a semiotic and a kind of iconography level can be the difference between like really powerful brands and the ones that just don't quite ever get there. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think, you know, Creative destruction is cool. Um, consistency isn't that sexy, but guess what sticks with, with, with those customers? You know, people, people who, are, who are trading with you as, as a brand interaction is, be it in, you know, purchase or in kind of ad, ad engagement or whatever metric you care about time on website, mm -hmm. they're, spending, they're spending seconds with you out of their, out of their lives. Mm -hmm. And they don't get bored of the stuff that you may be incredibly bored of with your offices covered in, you know, logos and artwork and living in decks and writing presentations and all of that. And there's a, one of my, one of my favorite, you know, 
uh, eye askew on the world of marketing uh, journalists, reporters, slash celebrities is Mark Ritson, who um, who writes for you know now globally, but then lots of the UK marketing press. And my favorite favorite Ritsonism of the year, and there are quite a few good ones. The one that stuck with me most was he was talking about working with LVMH, mm-hmm. uh, Louis Vuitton, Moe Hennessy. One, one of their brands is Verve Clicquot, the the um, the champagne brand. Yeah, they're very distinctive yellow. That if you spend time in very nice places as some of us do, again, not so much in 2020, you see those yellow umbrellas all over kind of, you know, racetracks and nice bars and, and whatnot. Mm-hmm. But apparently the, the story goes that, you know, the, the folks in, inside, um, inside the, the, the Verve team at LVMH were getting bored of the yellow and were starting to think about whether they even change it or just to, and again, you can dig, it, dig this out online and read the article, but, you know, he, had, he wrote a, an interesting piece about about investment on icons, and I, I wholeheartedly agree. You know, I've, I've felt when we deal when we dealt with long-lasting brands that you know the urge for, for new people who've got their hands on something for the first time, or even the people who've been on it for so long, who just sort of think they've done every iteration of X, whatever X is, is to change stuff. But it's you know the word we used earlier of investment. If you do have something iconic in your brand, mm-hmm. and it's taken investment to get there then there's value in that investment. So you throw mm-hmm. it away your peril, you better have something that goes, that, that's in there to replace it if you think about doing that. Mm-hmm. I think it's, yeah, it's an interesting thing in the ad industry where you know, it can feel, you know, it can feel almost like a slightly patronizing view of our forefathers when we look at like old VW ads and we kind of joke about the fact that they've kind of got a sort of house style that runs through print ads for 20 years. And it's, you know, mm-hmm. it's sort of like, oh, that was great back then, but it's part of advertising history. How relevant is that to me now? Do I really care about, you know, consistency of end lines and stuff? Well, I think so. I think if I look at, if I look at new world business, you know, the kind of brands and businesses that come along now that, um, that, that are succeeding and winning at disproportionate rates and speed, actually, they do hold, they do hold things consistent. And I can see, in, you know, I can see in businesses as diverse as TikTok or Fortnite or, you know, pick, pick a digital darling that's coming along and upending upending the world that there's some stuff in there that as they update through seasons and releases and they do change and refresh the experience there's a kernel to the there's a kernel to the experience or to the product or the offering mm-hmm. um and the way that they present themselves there's an aesthetic to Fortnite, there's an aesthetic to tiktok that is as much a part of that experience as the functionality and you know mm-hmm. they're both pretty very successful at seeing off the mm-hmm. next guy comes to take their place. I and mean, the amount of Battle Royale gaming that's out there trying to chase the Fortnite dollar is extraordinary. Mm-hmm. You know, you think, you think TikTok doesn't have some of the brightest minds in the world inside Facebook, Instagram, and Snapchat mm-hmm. on ludicrous salaries trying to take them down and work out what they're going to be. Oh, you bet they do, you know, mm-hmm. with support from the US government potentially even. But they, <laughs> they, they, you know, there will be someone new comes along just by nature of the beast. If you want to survive out of being that upstart, Mm-hmm. If you want to survive out of being a startup to be like a real upstart business and then be a leader that sticks around, mm-hmm. it isn't just destroying everything and continually trying to reinvent the wheel from the ground up because you don't, at scale, you can't do it. And um, also, you throw out the baby with the bathwater. Again, be a bit washing colloquial about things. Yeah, I mean, I, I always think of sort of subscribe to the view, you know, that kind of brands as people to some extent and it's like you look for consistency in people, right? Like if you've known someone for 20 years and they've yeah, been that person yeah. and then it's they start, it's pretty, it's pretty terrifying if they then start, 
yeah, join a cult or they yeah start dressing differently and they shave off all their hair and they give themselves a new name. Like, and I guess it's the sort of same idea really, isn't it? It's like if, if we're used to something behaving in a way and standing for a set of values, if, if that brand then radically changes that behavior and and, and set of values, it's quite, it's quite confusing. Um, Yeah. And surprise, surprise, we don't, don't like that. It looks like evidence of some kind of trauma. And I think right. people apply that to businesses as well. It's like, whoa, something's going on here. Now I'm a bit unsure. And it's hey, like I, I'm sure of who I am. Don't be boring. Got to keep evolving. Got to keep the experience fresh. Got to keep adding stuff because the world doesn't stay still. But if you don't also take time, uh, as I said, to really hold on to something that you've built that's got value, mm-hmm. then, you can, then you, can give up, you can give up your competitive advantage. You can give up your reason to exist in the world. Mm-hmm. And that's, uh, that's a shame. And, and, and the impulse is there. Mm-hmm. Everyone likes new, everyone likes shiny, everyone mm-hmm. likes innovation, but it's not, you know, it's not the whole story. Well, story. and also, you... there's also consistency and guarantee. And like, you know, again, I'll go back to my friends at Amazon. It's like, whatever happens, the heart of prime is you get your next day or two day delivery, depending on where you live. Mm-hmm. And it's all built around that the fulfillment centers, the way they work, the way it all happens. And it's like that guarantee then lets you innovate and have some fun and put some new stuff in, but mm-hmm. you never lose heart of what, of what the business idea is of why it's, you know, better than California or Walmart or whoever, the, whoever the local rival is, it's further behind on that story. Mm-hmm. No, I, I, I completely agree. And that's, um, it's kind of drum roll time. The final, the final yes. piece of wisdom. Um, number yes. 10, intriguingly, you, you've, you've called this the ladder of wisdom. What, what is the ladder of wisdom? It's very, it's a very good question, Jake. Thank you for asking. So, um, yeah, uh, again, as you've probably got the theme, I'm not a big fan of golden, golden rules in general. Um, but I found this was a useful way to kind of deal with like noise and hype and like shiny, sizzly new things. A bit back to that to that point before, right? Which is about what do you keep and what do you what do you what do you evolve? Um, and I was kind of I can't remember which company it was at, but I had, a, I had a office with a whiteboard. So that's one of the few of them. And I drew, I was kind of noodling one day, like over lunch, as you do, like eating lunch and trying to think about work, but not think about work, about how we kind of deal with data points that come in that kind of disrupt things and people are worried about X and Y and Z. And I kind of started to think about what, how you move from like data, which is everywhere and which propagates at a rate that we, you know, again, you read now businesses have too much data. It's like, really? Too much data? I don't know. It seems good to be, sensors are good, right? And I know we're, we're creating more data in a year than the world had in history, whatever, whatever the stats are. I was like, no, I want the data because if I don't have inputs, then I'm guessing. And data is the basis of what, what was going to end up at the top as wisdom. Mm-hmm. But I started drawing it like a ladder because I thought that'd be kind of a neat little allegory. And it was like, I put data at the bottom wrong. And I was like, what's more important? what's actually more important than the data, but requires data to, to feed it. And I was like, I've turned it information. Mm-hmm. I think they're not quite the same thing. I think there's an, I mean, there's something in the word there, like it's informed information, mm-hmm. whereas data can't be seven. There's a data point Tuesday. Sure. But, but you know, so what? Wow. That needs to come on a Tuesday is my biggest sales period consistently. Oh, now it's got, now it's got value that data, but I only know that if I've got some level of context. So I was like, that's okay. So I've got data at the bottom and then with context data becomes information. Mm-hmm. Now we've got, now I've got a currency. Now I can trade in information 
And when people come and talk to me about data, I can say, well, if you got the context, we can make it into information. Mm-hmm. Then I was like, information's great because information is starting to move up this ladder towards something of a higher order. Mm-hmm. But it's not quite knowledge yet, which is what I put my next rung as. So I was like, actually, above the information, I want things that we know and that we can then agree on and we can have as kind of like decision points in our, in our business. Um, and I was like, what is it that turns, turns information into knowledge? And I, I put it as learning. And I was like, here's where you now need to have a business as a business. You need to make sure you've got the right continuous ongoing learning programs and work and people in place so that your information doesn't stay stagnant. And in fact, becomes knowledge that you can use to really move forwards. Mm-hmm. I go, and then now I've got knowledge. So now I've got context, which I've got my, my data supply pipe needs to come with context attached to it. I've now got learning on that over time. And I've got knowledge. I'm getting close because knowledge is what I put into strategy to come out with wisdom. Mm-hmm. It's like, and that's, you know, that's the kind of heart of it for me is like you get to the top of that ladder when you don't just have data coming in or you don't react to the data because you can't, unless you've got the right context, learning and strategy around it. But when you do, you build your ladder and the more time you can spend, the more time you, your senior people can spend up the top of that ladder, turning knowledge, turning data into information, information into knowledge, knowledge into wisdom, the better your business is going to be. Mm-hmm. And if you're a CEO or, you know, whatever the job title is right at the top, Wisdom's got to be your stock in trade because that's where you, that's where you plot, plot the course for your business. That's where you deal with your board. That's where you talk to investors. That's where you talk to clients. And that's what, you know, you, you get paid to do. You get paid to be wise. You get paid to minimize the, the chances of you not being wise, but being reactive to something too far down the ladder. Mm-hmm. Uh, and just having that framework, I always found a nice way to, to cut through hype and noise and go, great. What you bring me there is more data points or what you bring me there is like useful information, but it doesn't change. It doesn't change our strategy. It doesn't move up the ladder and get all the way to the wisdom we use to run our business and to grow value for our people and our stakeholders and our shareholders and our customers. No, so I, I, leave, I leave you with the ladder of wisdom. Yeah, no, it's a fantastic way to end. And I did promise in the intro that you'd be sharing your wisdom and, and you certainly go. have. So um, <laughs> yeah, thank you so much for your, for your time and um, great to chat as always. My, my pleasure, Jake. Big fan of 42 Courses and what you guys are, are doing to help people move up their own personal ladders up to the, up to the wisdom that they need to succeed. So best of luck in, in all of it. And we'll, uh, we'll speak again soon. Thank you. Cheers. Thanks for joining us for this week's edition of the 42 Courses podcast. We'll be back soon with more interviews with some of the world's greatest minds. In the meantime, you can follow us on Twitter at 42courses or check out our website 42courses.com for information on all the courses we offer. Have a great week.